The Gates Award for Global Health of a million dollars has been given to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The prize was created by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to recognise outstanding contributions to improving global health, especially in resource-poor settings. Above all, it shows how unique the school is as an academic institution because it's never been awarded to an academic institution previously. That was Andy Haynes, director of the London School. He told me they've always had a strong bias towards tackling health problems of the developing world and that much of their success is thanks to the school's personal links with thousands of ex-students. The alumni that we've... uh, Uh, developed over the years, who have gone through the school. Many of them have gone on to have leadership positions in many countries around the world and have made a real impact on on global health in that way. Uh, I think also because we have, uh, in addition to our commitment to research excellence and postgraduate teaching, we also have a commitment to influence policy and practice. And I think that again is unusual for an academic uh, institution. Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Sir Andy Haynes, OBE. And one of the ways the school's recently extended its ability to improve health around the world has been with distance learning. Today, there are more students gaining degrees from the school away from London than those physically attending the college. And the Dean of Studies, Sharon Hutley, told me the Gates Award will help them expand the programme to make it even more effective. We've been teaching here in London for over 100 years. Uh, And it was in 1998 that we launched our distance learning programme, which meant that people didn't need to come to London in order to be able to experience our teaching. How many students do you have in London and how many students do you have in the distance learning programme? We have about a 1,000 students in London at the moment. Uh, Just over 600 of those are on our master's programmes and the remainder are taking research degrees. And then we have about 2,500 students on our distance learning programme. Where are these distance learning students? They're in over 120 different countries. It's amazingly diverse. And how do they study? What happens? Uh, Well, every distance learning student receives a set of self-study materials, um, and that can take various forms from basic textbooks through to uh, online materials and on CD-ROMs and so forth. A wide range of materials, because our students are studying in very different circumstances. And then they can interact with each other and with their tutors through what we call our web boards. And so there's quite a lot of interaction um, through um, the internet mainly or through email. That's our main um, way of of teaching through distance. What difference will the grant of this award make to you? Well, it will help us uh, enhance the various facilities that we can provide to students. We've seen an enormous change even in the 10 years we've been running distance learning in students' access to facilities. And so we want to be able to capitalise on that and to be able to extend learning opportunities to them, interaction opportunities to them, and try and reduce some of the distance in distance learning. Um, We'll also be able to look at uh, setting up new modules and possibly new whole new master's courses through the money that this prize will provide. Physically, what sorts of things will will you provide? Is this new software, new course books, new facilities for contacting the students, what? 
Well, one of our main priorities at the moment is to enhance students' access to things like library and IT facilities. And we're already, we've already been planning for that, but the award will help us expedite uh, those developments. Um, but access to new forms of interaction through, uh, for example, through social networking uh, software, um, to enhanced course materials, so being able to, for example, put materials into different formats, so it might be written copy or through CD-ROMs. All of this will give students more opportunities, more diverse opportunities for, for the way they learn. Mm. One of the big weaknesses of distance learning, though, is that you can't actually just chat with your tutor, can you? Is there anything you can do in the IT format that might help reduce that gap? Well, in some ways you can just chat to your tutor, but that's not easy when you're in so many different time zones which our programs are so we've got students spanning all the time zones around the world so synchronous uh, interaction is more difficult than it would be on a program which was just focused say on one particular region but you can do asynchronous discussions which are admit are slower than than synchronous ones but that's what we've been doing since we started the program is, is that by email or what uh, that's through our web boards and um, so you can see a sort of discussion thread developing over the course of time. So students can post queries there and then they can discuss either with their fellow students or, or with members of staff. Um, but what these, some of these new facilities will enable us to do is that for those groups who, who do want to chat online, for example, they can do so. And we've started experimenting with some of that already. So you could actually get audio online, do you think? Yes, yes, I think we can. And audio will probably be easier in the short at least in the short to medium term, for students who have poor access to uh, broadband internet. Yeah. What about partnerships with other well-meaning organisations in these 120 countries that the school is involved with? Well, one of the uh, areas where we're already developing things is trying to form um, clusters of students, particularly in areas where they have less access to facilities and, and other resources in their work and so forth. So in building on our research collaborations in a number of African countries, we've been successful in attracting scholarships for clusters of students in these areas. And that helps the students study together, they're working together at the same sort of pace. And it also means that they can interact with staff both at the institutions where they're based and with staff that go back and forth from the London School um, uh, to help support their studies. And the big killers are things like malaria, TB, HIV, AIDS, and not forgetting, of course, diarrhoea. Do you get your hands dirty or are you just an ivory tower? Well, uh, the school, I think, gets its hands very dirty. Um, the staff spend a lot of time in the field and uh, not just sitting here in London analysing clean data. So, yes, we certainly get our hands very dirty. Sharon Hutley, Professor and Dean of Studies at the London School of Hygiene. One of her long-distance students, David Gitanga, is a consultant paediatric cardiologist in Nairobi. He's adding public health to his already impressive array of qualifications. And when I spoke to him by telephone, I heard just precisely how the London School know-how can be transferred by people like David right up the ladder to government. Since I started this course, I strongly believe that maybe all the the clinicians ought to study public health. Uh, we, in medicine brings you up to look at things very narrowly. You selfishly look at an individual patient and you will actually commit resources that sh you should have thought better about when you think about your patient individually. But I think public health expands you a little bit. 
in my career as a pediatric cardiologist, you can get very concerned about minuity in, in medicine. Not that that patient is not particularly important, but those sort of resources affect other areas as well. And just the thinking about it maybe gets you to practice a little bit better and maybe gets you to stretch the resources that are, of course, uh, not in abundance, to spread out to a few more people. So uh, I, I think I'm coming from one area of intensive uh, medic- medicine to, to an area where you think about a wider group of people, and, and maybe that's why I'm, I'm into this. When you've completed your training, how much of, a, of an improvement do you think you'll be able to make in your practice in keeping people in your area more healthy? Ah, now that uh, is, if I finish, when I finish, I am the vice chair of uh, um, uh, Kenya Pediatric Association, going to be the chair next year. So I have a wider, uh, a wider area to play with. And I'm interested in three areas, essentially teaching, and then uh, a wider aspects of pediatrics in the community, and then my own uh, clinical areas that help me, my private practice, help me to keep perspective and in touch with the patient. So in my other cap as a Kenya Pediatric Association chairman, I'm able actually to use a lot of the things that I've learned directly and, and, and use them in, uh, to help out the larger group of pediatricians and other healthcare workers engage in research that is hopefully going to feed into policy and uh, uh, Kenya Pediatric Association is respectable and listened to by the ministry and that's one of the ways that we hope to be able to impact on health in a wider way. Dr David Gitanga in Nairobi. Apart from distance learning, however, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine carries out seminal research in the most needed diseases like malaria, HIV, AIDS and tuberculosis, for instance, but also in other less obvious areas, all of which will benefit from the Gates Award, as I heard from Andy Haynes. One area where we're going to be expanding our activities over the next uh, few years is bringing together research and teaching around maternal, reproductive, neonatal and child health. So we're going to be launching a new centre to bring together a diverse range of researchers around the school, about 80 people uh, around the school who work on topics of relevance to, to this, uh, these interrelated areas. And we're going to be launching a new centre on that uh, in the near future. Another area that's going to uh, achieve, uh, I think, greater prominence in the school is the whole area of diagnostics. A lot of work's gone on up to now, quite appropriately, on developing new drugs and new vaccines, but we also need to improve uh, the availability of cheap and affordable near-patient diagnostic tests for a range of diseases which afflict poor populations, and that will be another area that we're increasing our emphasis on in the next few years. Are you confident that with an increasing global population there is still the possibility of having that increased population more healthy? Well, of course, population growth is uh, a continuing challenge and um, it is uh, threatening the limits of of sustainable development in a a number of countries. And of course, with rising expectations of economic growth, much of it powered through fossil fuels, it also threatens uh, the environment, the global environment. So there are really significant uh, challenges ahead. However, um, it's also true to say that our knowledge is improving dramatically too. So there are many new technologies coming on stream. Uh, We need to work on better ways of delivering those new interventions and particularly strengthening health systems. I think if we can uh, strengthen health systems over years to to come, develop a whole range of new technologies, 
get them to populations that could benefit from them, uh, then we could uh, move into the middle of this century with a larger population, but still uh, at a better level of health. Now, if you're developing health systems, you need to be trusted by many governments all over the world. Do you have indications that that trust is there? Well, uh, th this trust has to be built up by collaboration with local partners. You can't come in as an external institution uh, and start uh, trying to dictate policies in different countries. What needs to be done is a collaborative partnership uh, with institutions in countries, whether that be universities, research institutions, and indeed government departments. And in that way, get a better understanding of the kind of challenges that are confronting uh, policymakers on the ground as they juggle with um, health priorities, often with very, very limited resources. And, and briefly, why is it that distance learning is such a big priority? Would it not perhaps be better to bring students to London and then let them go back to their countries? Well, of course, we do bring many students to London, and that's very, very successful, and we are very glad that they, they come here. But many students aren't in a position to come to London. That may be for financial reasons, for personal family reasons, or, or because their work doesn't permit it. And for those students, it really opens up the possibility of studying uh, at the school or with the school, and so that they can um, improve their own capabilities whilst retaining um, their, their, their jobs and working and, and staying with their families in country. So we do think it opens up the school's um, resources to a whole range of people that otherwise couldn't take advantage of these opportunities. And at the moment you have three and a half thousand students. How many students do you think you could eventually have? Well that's a very active debate in the school and um, I think at this stage we're aiming to expand our program to meet the growing needs. Of course this means taking on a whole new cadre of tutors and that's what we've done very successfully to uh, staff the distance learning program up to now. And we aim to continue doing that um, in the future. We don't have a set number that we're aiming for. What we uh, hope to do is to respond to the growing uh, demand, uh, maintaining, of course, the quality of the programme. And the tutors could be in any country? The tutors can be in any country in the world, as long as they're uh, people that, whose, whose quality we're, we're confident about. They could be based anywhere. And we have very careful procedures in place to ensure that um, everyone does come up to the same standards. And which areas of the world have the biggest need? Well, in terms of the biggest need, of course, uh, it's uh, sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and, and also perhaps uh, Latin America as well. But of course, uh, although studying by distance learning is cheaper, uh, it's still uh, beyond the grasp of many people um, in, in those parts of the world. So we're also working with partner institutions to help them use our materials to run their own training courses, which could be accessible to people uh, living in those countries. And we see that as an important part of the work we're doing to build capacity in country. And what's the one message you'd like to leave uh, communities, health communities, health-based communities with all over the world now that you've, you've got this award, you've got this recognition, and you've got wonderful plans for taking the mission even further? Uh, well, uh, the, 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 I think the message would be essentially an optimistic one that although there are major challenges to world health, uh, through uh, increasing partnerships internationally, uh, through developing better evidence and trans translating it into policy and practice, we can improve world health. Andy Haynes, Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. For Audio News, I'm Peter Goodwin.